vengeance. I am the knight. I am... Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how are you this evening? Matt, I don't know why. Uh, I don't know what has failed in my body, but uh, six and a half miles or seven miles into an eight-mile run tonight, my ass started to cramp up on me. And uh, it hurts. It hurts bad. Uh, But aside from that pain in my literal ass, I'm okay. Uh, And I'm excited to talk to you because... You have finally started season three of Picard. Where are you right now? We are three episodes in. So we have reached the point where we now know that the founders or a splinter group of the founders are somehow involved. And the Titan is spinning towards some sort of weird gravitic anomaly that reads both biological and technological, which... That does not sound like it's something that bodes well. No, and you know, for me personally, it was it was actually a low point of the season because that I think had the most tone deaf moment of the entire season, where Riker tells Picard, "Get off the bridge! You've killed us all." That to me just did not strike as believable. Didn't seem like something that uh, one old friend would say to another, regardless of what happened. That was a real low point. It's everything, quite literally, is going to be up from that. Uh, that seemed off to me, but I was wondering if that had something to do with what's going on with Riker. Because I have a feeling like we haven't seen everything, but his comment about how he's not with his wife and daughter because they couldn't tolerate him anymore or something to that effect from the first episode. I, I think Will is hurting. Your your intuition is quite correct. Okay. That was the only way I was able to rationalize that moment, which seemed very much off to me. Yeah, that was that was not a good beat. But yeah, I had surmised that if you're going to bring Beverly Crusher back, it's because there was some relationship between her and Jean-Luc. And what my guess, what I still think would have been an interesting thing to explore was that Wesley was his all along. That uh, she had had some uh, some fling with with him uh, while she was either dating or married to Jack, and that Wesley was, was always his. But instead, you have a son with him, and you name him after your dead husband. How fucked up is that? Ooh, your dead husband, who was also his best friend, which I don't know yeah. if it makes it better or worse. It's definitely weirder. There's a Star Trek novel called Q Squared. Very famous Star Trek novel. Yes. Have you read? I have not. I only read the Shatner verse. Ah. Well, this one (laughs) is Q and Trelane, the Squire of Gothos. But it takes place in a couple of different universes. The traditional mainline Star Trek universe and there's another where Jack Crusher didn't die. Ooh. And he's captain of the Enterprise, and Jean-Luc is his number one, I believe. It's been a long time. That's weird. Yeah, and that's just 
the only exposure I think anyone has ever had to Jack Crusher since he's been dead since Jump. Yeah, he's not really fleshed out on screen. Beverly never talks about him. Wesley never talks about him. Yeah, because did Wesley even really know his father? No, I don't think so. But uh, yeah, even though Ed Spieler's ass is like 35, Jack is supposed to be 20. So he is absolutely a post-nemesis baby, which uh, I don't know. I don't know. When he first showed up, Amber was like, there's no way he could be Picard's son. He's way too old. Ah, yeah. But yeah, it was like, okay, it was time. When both you and Laura messaged me within half an hour of each other being like you need to watch this it was like okay they're ganging up on me i I gotta do this (laughs) and episodes nine and ten especially nine is is just great it is just a warm porridge for the soul uh if you ever liked next generation this season definitely makes picard worth it i i will say and, and we'll continue to talk about this as you continue to watch it the internet is getting a little too thirsty for the spinoff series at this point. It's getting a little sad and I don't think it's going to happen. And everybody's just going to be mopey and miserable about it. Tonight, we're looking at three stories of Batman fighting dark mirrors of himself. Two of them, very literally dark mirrors of him. One less so. And that's our first one for the night. Because tonight's first story is Batman Grendel. This is Batman Grendel Devil's Riddle and Batman Grendel Devil's Mask with story and art by Matt Wagner, colors by Joe Matt, letters by Ken Brusenak, and edited by Denny O'Neill and Dan Raspler. The cover date was August of 1993. The assassin Grendel comes to Gotham out of boredom to pull off a particular crime and challenge himself in confrontation with Batman. Bruce Wayne's life, both in and out of costume, intersects with that of Hunter Rose and two women whose lives are entwined with the confrontation. This is your first exposure to Grendel. Yes. Yes. Uh, So I read, I read these two books for tonight and then I had designs on cracking open the Grendel omnibus, uh, Grendel Hunter Rose. And as we were getting ready for the show, I did I did open it. I did glance through it. I was surprised to see that large stretches of it are not what I would consider traditional comic style, which was interesting. But yeah, I really don't know anything about him. I don't know anything more than I did last week. <laughs> This is a very snapshot of Hunter Rose's life. This doesn't give you a wide expanse of who he is. The prose with narration that is a lot of that is Devil by the Deed. He never finished the original comic version of that story and then released Hunter Rose's story as prose with illustration that was an in-universe true crime book about Hunter Rose, and later went and filled in comic versions of that in a pair of miniseries, Grendel, Black, White, and Red, and Grendel, Red, White, and Black, that he wrote and got an all-star cast of artists to do each of the short stories and chapters. That's uh looks like how the omnibus collects it. And Grendel is highly experimental. 
the whole series is highly experimental. It jumps from what is a very noiry kind of Grendel as this bon vivant assassin by the most recent Grendel stuff. We are Star Trek future times and Grendel has gone from being one guy to the Grendel cons, these like warlords that lord over society. And in between, there's all these different iterations and incarnations of Grendel. It's really interesting. And Wagner has written a lot of it, but he's also let other writers come in and write small side story arcs. And he doesn't always draw them. The Pander Brothers do a long piece. Tim Sale does a bunch. There's a Grendel novel with a few spot illustrations by Wagner. One of the ones set in the far future by Greg Rucka. It's a wide expanse. The second Grendel Batman crossover is a time travel story where Grendel Prime, this cyborg genetically enhanced Grendel from the far future, travels back to the present Terminator style to acquire the skull of Hunter Rose after his death and runs afoul of Batman. A lot of weird shit going on, apparently. Oh, yeah, there's vampires. There's a vampire pope at one point. Wagner. The vampire pope. Yes, but this is a much more grounded story. You don't get all that weird in this one. No, no, you just don't get a lot of who is Grendel, what makes him tick, what does he want. He just kind of exists here. I'm both do and don't want to spoil any of that for you. Because the thing that makes Grendel, in my opinion, the or the Hunter Rose Grendel, the ideal anti-bat, is that as opposed to our other two anti-bats tonight, who are these literal beat-for-beat beat just flips of Batman. And let's be fair, there are many more anti-bats than these three. Oh, we did we did a whole DC event on anti-bats. Mm -hmm. And let's not, there's Killer Moth, there's Owlman, there's Bane. Bane is fundamentally an anti-bat. But Grendel comes from the opposite of Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne is a rich kid with doting parents who gets everything when his parents die. Eddie, and you never know his name other than that he was Eddie as a kid, had parents who were not even negligent. Negligent is more than what they were. They were apathetic. They were bored. They didn't know how to deal with this kid who was a genius, who was brilliant. And so he has to make himself. Then as a teenager, he, he becomes a fencing savant. And at a tournament, he meets an adult woman named Jocasta Rose, who takes him under her wing, seduces him, and gives him all the confidence in the world. And she's, she's dying. She has some terminal disease, and so dies long before he becomes Grendel. But Hunter, in the end, chooses to be Grendel because he can. I realize it while reading these stories. Grendel is Ghostmaker if Ghostmaker was a villain and legitimately cool. <laughs> the uh the costume is a little similar yeah because he is 
the bon vivant as Hunter Rose that Bruce Wayne is. He has no generational money. He's this brilliant author who's become wealthy from his writing and secretly from all the crime. Crime, very profitable. And in the end, you get a very small moment in this book when Hunter goes back to New York where you see, well, you see Larry, who is his sort of go-to secretary blackmail guy. You see a bunch of Larry, but you also see Stacy Palumbo, the little girl who he adopted. Dick Grayson saves Bruce Wayne. Dick Grayson is the thing that keeps Bruce from sinking into the darkness. Stacy is the thing that brings about Hunter Rose's death. Literally. Interesting. Interesting. Because he mentions a couple of times in this book, the wolf. Hunter's arch nemesis is Argent the wolf, a literal lycanthrope who Stacy has another, like an uncle relationship with Argent. And she doesn't realize initially that Hunter is Grendel. She just thinks he's Hunter. And eventually when she discovers he is Grendel, she sells him out to Argent. And in the final battle, while Grendel is able to cripple Argent, Argent kills him. So while Dick saves Bruce, it's Stacy who kills Hunter. Now, there was some reference to the NYPD using mystical approaches to try to stop uh, Grendel. Was that is that what they were talking about there? Yeah, that's Argent. That Argent is an immortal wolfman an indigenous person, Wolfman. And so that, yeah, they, they weren't, you know, casting magic spells. They were working with a, a wolf guy. Because it's not like he's a I, transforms with a full moon wolf guy. He's a wolf guy all the time. Ah, well, hey, that helps you spot who the wolf people are. But that's a lot of background on Grendel. And if we, as for a bonus episode, read more of the Grendel stuff, you'll, I think, begin to see where those parallels lie especially because hunter and bruce wayne in their you know hunter and bruce wayne personas are also very antithetical to each other bruce is this sort of lazy sitting around well hunter is action hunter is active and charming and with the the cane and the look at me i'm a bon vivant he is what Bruce sort of pretends to be. But Bruce also pretends to be sort of lazy and incompetent, while Hunter actively is intelligent. So, dear listeners, I'll tell you this. Matt has had designs in this episode for a long time. A very long time. Only probably slowed by the complete impossibility to find this book. Matt is gesticulating wildly now. This was a very unpleasant reading experience. Uh, we've only had to engage in some illegalities uh, a handful of times on the show. The last one I rem remember was Joker's Boner. Joker's Boner and Spider-Man Batman are the only two times I think we've really had to go that route. Yeah, and it's uh, it's terrible. If you are frequently reading comics on uh, pirate sites i feel so bad for you it's such a miserable experience 15 clicks to advance a page because of 14 pop-up ads i just ugh, i hate it but yeah that's probably the only reason why we didn't do this episode any sooner i thought it was 
interesting to build this book around Batman and Grendel, around Bruce Wayne and Hunter Rose, and spend so much time on these women. So much time. Yeah. This is a remarkably simple story for 96 pages. Yeah. This is two 48-page books. And part of that is, I feel like, this is, again, Wagner experimenting. This has that The Spirit vibe, where a lot of the great stories of The Spirit, The Spirit is just sort of the prime mover of the action, and the story is about the people that the spirit encounters. We also get a lot of those episodes of Batman the Animated Series. Joker's Favor, POV. So I think this was Wagner playing with that. It's dense. Yeah. Wagner over the years has learned that less is more. You see that in Trinity. You see that in uh, the Dark Moon Rising duology. but. Faces and this are very dense. Grendel, the early Grendel stuff is very, very dense. The more recent stuff is less so. The Grendel Prime stuff, Wagner does a lot more showing rather than telling. The art is still obviously early in his career, but it's still beautiful. Oh, yeah. And he has such a great sense of motion. The way when Hunter is almost dancing as he massacres these GCPD officers, it is a terrible beauty. Indeed it is. I I laughed out loud at one panel and Abby was like, what are you laughing at? And it was this cop who was stuck in like a, a what, what? And like, it's this, like this quick motion of showing him confused in which direction to look like captured so perfectly. Uh, I love most of the layouts here, but I did hate how, one of our main characters in this book eats it in one tiny little panel that's buried on the corner of a page. That moment, because we have spent so much time with her, should have been bigger, should have been larger. I got so confused. Like I had to go back and like reread. Oh, oh, that's where Grindel fucking ran her through. Oh yeah, that little tiny panel. I'm 99% sure I'm going to know your answer, but I know... How much did the lettering bother you? Oh, it bothered me right up the ass, Matt. I think that's the reason why my uh, my ass is sore tonight. It's been chapped all day trying to read this low-res scan of cursive lettering. I hate it. I hate yeah. it so much. But that was only slightly worse than Batman's robotic lettering, which also didn't quite capture the right tone. Like, you could have told me that it was the Bat computer spitting out all of the stuff that was supposed to be Batman's narration. Not a good Batman voice. This was a book that Wagner had started years before. And because Comico, that was publishing Grendel, went under, it had to sit on the shelf for a while before Dark Horse started publishing Grendel and they were able to work out the arrangement with DC. This is a year after Faces, which was the Two-Face story that Wagner did that we covered. With the uh, circus folk, right? Yes. But I don't think he quite has Bruce's voice down yet. Hunter is a fully realized character. He is just smarmy. 
And he is flat out a sociopath. He has zero loyalty to anyone or anything and kills with not even glee because glee would entail him reveling in it. He kills for necessity. But, and again, this feels to me like reading this, since I know Grendel, it all worked. There were so many beats in here where, in retrospect, looking at it, it's like, if you don't know Grendel, you don't realize how important that moment was. Yeah, this is... This is written in such a way that it's not very welcoming to the uninitiated. Like just just the idea of the basic plot is kind of confusing. Like okay, the Sphinx is coming to Gotham and Grendel wants it. He also wants to kind of frame the Riddler, which is an idea that comes up and then that's quickly forgotten uh when Batman figures out, "Oh, it's it's you know definitely not him." Like Eddie doesn't even pop up in this book at all. Yeah, I sat back and it's like that has zero value other than at one point it does allow Grendel to distract Batman while he does something else. And credit to Wagner for fleshing out these two women, but neither of them have much agency in this story. They are manipulated by Grendel and then have a tragic ending. One of the problems with this as a story, maybe not problems with it as a story, but Grendel's always the smartest person in the room. So when you pit him against Batman, who is also always the smartest person in the room, it's the unstoppable force and the immovable object. But yeah, there's all these little hints of things. You you get one panel with Stacy. You can kind of figure out who Larry is, but there's the references to Argent without any explanation of Argent. And then in the end, the thing that gets Hunter to sort of back off is one of these two women has a daughter that she gave up for adoption and she winds up nearly dying and Batman has to save her. And the dialogue towards the end shows you that Hunter really is like, I nearly let a child die. That's Hunter's one little bit of his code. Children are never involved. Hunter saved Stacy from a child predator. That's how he took her in. Her uncle was one of his capos, and he kills the uncle, which Stacy witnesses, which is why she's very anti-Grendel. But then, while she was running away, this horrible man, again, child predator takes her and Grendel mercilessly kills him. It's interesting then that he would resort to kidnapping a child to get across his plot. It was an odd choice, but I think he felt like he had control of the situation, that the kid would be fine because he was in control of the situation. He never thought Batman would actually be good enough to get involved at that point. What did he want with the Sphinx? I think he was just, for all intents and purposes, pulling a prank. The reason he is Grendel, the reason he is all of these things, are because he's bored. He is the smartest person in his world. He is a genius, bar none. He came from a 
boring middle-class family in the middle of nowhere that didn't understand him. And so now he's made himself the king of New York crime because why the fuck not? Yeah. He is a complete sociopath whose answer to everything is why the fuck not? Kill them all. Let God sort them out. And so it's, it sounds like he's got a bit of a kind of an Alexander the, the Great problem. No more things left to conquer. At this point, yeah. Because Argent is run away with his tail literally between his legs. He has gone from being, you know, the mob's chief assassin to the king of New York crime. And so it's like, all right, let's go to Gotham and entertain myself. There is eventually a story, Behold the Devil, that throws this all off in Hunter's own head. It's it's one of the supernatural tales. It's the one time where, aside from Argent, Hunter interacts with the supernatural. And it's a very telling of Hunter's reaction in that story. But maybe someday we'll get there in some bonus material. All in all, I had not read this story when I had read Grendel. So the first time through, I remember being a bit off put by it, but I also read it shortly after it came out. Mm. So I was 13, 14 years old. I was not getting the nuance of this story at that age. And my question going back to it was, I love so much of Grendel and remember this leaving me kind of, eh. I wasn't sure if that was because I didn't get Grendel. Or because I didn't get what Wagner was doing. Because I didn't go back to Grendel until I was in college. When I could appreciate all the things that Wagner was doing in Grendel. And I think I appreciated it much more now knowing both of those things. But I think that is almost a requirement that you had both of those pieces. Yeah, I I think I would like to crack open that omnibus, really get into it, and then get this thing in print. Or some less frustrating manner of consuming it yeah it was oh god the reading of this this is the least notes i have taken on anything just because trying to take notes while dealing with how i had to read it was just too much oh i i completely agree and yeah this is this is the same thing you see so many times that the weird wonky licensing that strikes down any type of digital republishing or anything like you know, we're, we're never going to see any Dark Man comics. Never going to see uh, Ash versus, you know, Army of Darkness. I'm glad I got that in print on my shelf. What are you going to do? Intellectual property is messy. It's not by any means bad. And I think for me, with my full grounding in both the characters, it's good. But I feel like, yeah, reading it, I was absolutely like, between the lettering in general... The frustration with how we had to read it and the fact that you had no grounding in Grendel, this is gonna this would be an uphill battle for you. Yeah, poor old Will. Visually, it's stunning. Like again, I love the layouts. I love his just sense of motion and even the art feels very experimental. Like this is a guy fully in control of his vision and what he wants to do. It's just unfortunate that sometimes his vision is confusing as fuck. The small panels with the dialogue below each panel is something that I see Wagner do in different places, especially in this era of Wagner. And it can be interesting, but it can also be kind of confusing as you're trying to follow the art and the story and not having a traditional comic page. 
the only thing I will say from the story, aside from what we've already talked about, the issues between the two women who are roommates, Miss King and what's the other one? Hillary's Rachel King is addressed by both of those names regularly. Hillary is Hilly or Hillary, and you rarely yeah. hear her last name. It does tend to get a little too melodramatic. And I think Wagner, he brings up this this idea of, oh, they have this, this shared history of one had an abortion and one had a child that she was forced to give away. I don't think he did that all that delicately. And it does strike of, I'm a man. Let me write something that I think is deep and profound. And it's really just, it comes off as fairly shallow. It's also 1993. Ah, very true. I will give him both credit for being willing to use that as a story point, but also take away the credit for not getting someone to give him a fuller understanding of what that would mean. I also thought that the fact that the two of them are casually dressing and undressing in front of each other, you didn't also talk to women who were roommates and be like, so do you two, does one of you, you know, shower while the other one is there or just start taking off your clothes? Like, no. Do you guys trade bras? Right, no. Going through the first time, I was like, wait, are they a couple? Because they're really casual with the nudity around each other. But no. And it's never done necessarily lasciviously. Because there's not ogling, there's not even cheesecake shots of it, but they're just very casual in how naked they are around each other. Yeah, and they are college roommates. It's not like they came to Gotham and met each other and it's just kind of some weird housing situation that they found themselves in. You do get the sense that they are supposed to be friends, actual deep connected friends, and that comes off as relatively believable. The way Wagner intertwined them with Bruce and with Hunter that one of them is working for the publishing house that is courting Hunter and one of them is working for the gallery that has the Sphinx that the Wayne Foundation is bringing to Gotham okay there's a logic there but it is just really a very simple story it's Grendel comes to Gotham Grendel wants to do something to the Sphinx Grendel blackmails a bunch of people Batman gets involved. Batman and Grendel fight. One woman dies. One woman gets her daughter. Batman breaks Grendel's arm. Grendel goes back to New York. Batman is like, eh, I don't really want to chase him. I've got enough problems. Alfred leaves for uh, England for a little vacation. Comes back. I always love how Wagner handles the Alfred-Batman relationship. The Alfred-Bruce relationship. That Alfred... It's early enough that the cave is still not in great shape. Part of the cave fell. Alfred pushed Bruce out of the way and got hit with some debris, has a broken arm and a broken leg. And he's still walking around the manor trying to dust, which absolutely is what Alfred would do. And Bruce is eventually like, you need to go to England, take a vacation. You need to heal. And still Alfred comes home early because he is duty bound. (laughs) You said duty. I think that's where we end this. Absolutely. That means it's time for Batman Grendel on the big board. Oh boy, we are well on our way. We are at 252 stories. We have crossed the halfway point to 300. Woo! Number one 
is still the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Number 50 is Only Takes a Night, when Bruce Wayne and Catwoman go out on a date. Coming in at a sexy 69 is Batman Chronicles number 5, Oracle Year One. Down at 100 is Consequences, where Jason Todd might have pushed a guy off a roof. Maybe. Maybe. We'll never know. At 150 is Blind Justice, Detective Comics 598 to 600. 200 is The Kingdom, Son of the Bat, the Kingdom Come follow-up. And hey, down at the bottom at 252, still White Knight. Still bad. This is a well-made comic in most respects. The art is gorgeous. Coloring is great. The plot isn't bad, but is not accessible. And the lettering is frustrating. Quite frustrating. I want to put it higher than it deserves, probably, but... It's a good-looking book. There's no denying that. Yeah. I'm leaning towards somewhere in the 120s to 140s. Ooh. Ooh, that's... That's harsh. I was... uh, Where we got blades now? A 157. Oh, yeah. that's we're gonna talk off air about blades. I got some ideas. Okay. Some Faces is down at 172. That's harsh. Yeah. What do we have? What do we have against Back Wagner on this show? Well, we look at the other two and they're way up. Mad Monk and Monster Man are 53 and 54. Uh, those are some good books. Right. And when we get Trinity, it's going to wind up probably in those mid-double digits, too. For instance, we just said Consequences is at 100. I don't think this goes above that. So but where would be the floor? I still think it's better than Blind Justice at 150. That was that wild thing with the body-switching scientist and the amnesiac and his sister and on redo card and bruce wayne was maybe a communist spy and a whole lot of stuff that didn't all necessarily fit together and had a lot of hats on hats uh indeed it did what do you think about this in the 130s i could definitely get with that it doesn't beat batman year 100 at 131 that is a fuller story and despite it kind of meandering in places and also having some stuff that was like, well, that didn't necessarily need to be there with supporting characters. It did not require the amount of knowledge that you didn't have. You didn't need to have read anything else to at least get the feel for that. While here it feels like you really needed more story. I'm thinking 133 or 134. Hmm. Batgirl Day 1 is pretty fun. It is. Robin Year 1 is a solid retelling of Dick Grayson's origin by Chuck Dixon. Uh, That would make this the new 134. There we go. Batman Grendel at 134. When we got to break a tie, Chuck Dixon. There are consequences to engaging in douchebaggery. Our next story is The Player on the Other Side. This is Batman Special number one. The writer is Mike W. Barr. 
pencils by Michael Golden, inks by Mike DiCarlo, colors by Adrian Roy, letters by Todd Klein, and edited by Dick Giordano, Len Wein, and Nicola Cutie. The cover date is June of 1984. The Wrath, a criminal whose life parallels that of Batman, is hunting the cop who killed his criminal parents, Jim Gordon. Can Batman save Gordon while confronting the dark mirror of himself? Speaking of very simple stories, this is very A to B to C. It is, and I don't know whether I would have liked this more complicated or less complicated, in that I would have dug this, I think, as like an alternate universe Batman or a Wrath who was a bit more grounded. It seemed very silly once he pops in in a costume that looks exactly like Batman's. Without giving too much away at this point, the character in our next story, who is very similar to the Wrath, amps up the wacky and the wild to 11, and that makes him work better than the Wrath. I don't know. I really like this story. (laughs) Oh, I really like this story. It's beautiful. It's a well-written story. I'm not saying that the next story is better than this story. I'm saying that that character works better than the Wrath because he's more of a character. Yeah, yeah. And again, I think think we either got to do more with the Wrath or we got to do less. We got to make him more like a, I don't know, just a almost a year one kind of version where it's not this elaborate costume. It's not purple. It's not just so outrageous. It's just a guy who just wants to kill as many cops as he can. Uh, And it's because cops killed his parents. I can have that or I can have a Batman from a universe in which Thomas and Martha were hoods and cops killed Thomas and Martha, right? This, as we have it, falls somewhere in between those two ideas. And you never learn his name. You never know much about his personality. He doesn't have much of a personality. He is just acting. Yes, he has a love interest, but that I don't entirely know why the love interest was needed for this story other than to be there when Batman shows up at her apartment so he can find the clue to find the rat. The fact that he's hunting Jim Gordon makes for an interesting story. But I also would have liked more there. This is coming from me reading this story in 2023, not in 1984. But we know now that any decent cop, anyway, is going to be traumatized by killing a person. Yeah. By killing two people? In front of their kid, a man like Jim Gordon would remember that. And we seem to get no impression that this left any impression on Jim whatsoever. Yeah, I kill people every night. Either that or the other way I was kind of leaning on this one in my head. Have you seen Memento? Of course I've seen Memento. I almost had this feeling like the wrath has been killing the guy who killed his parents over and over again. Oh, that would be a fun twist. That would be a a just a spectacular twist. In the end, you know, he'd leave some kind of note and Gordon was like, I wasn't in Gotham that night. Or 
if you go back to the early where Gordon was the cop at the scene in Crime Alley, I couldn't have been there. I was right here in Park Row at the Wayne shooting. That this guy just fixates on a cop and assumes that that's the cop who killed his parents over and over and over again. And he has some type of handler, some type of mob guy, some type of basically person hiring him out to kill cops or law enforcement. It's a bit more tricky to get him out to Scotland to, uh, or I guess it, to kill somebody in Scotland Yard, it doesn't have to be Scotland, but whatever European law enforcement officer he just recently murdered, that that gets a bit more difficult, but I, I love that idea. I, mean, I love I th- that we can punch up the story and make it better. I mean, I think he could also just want all cops dead, but I think his personal vendetta keeps him killing the same, the same cop over and over and over again. That when he's in between jobs, he's hunting the... He, he finally killed the one who killed his parents. But wait, no, I just saw the news. And wait, no, that's the cop who killed my parents. It gives him a, a pathology that makes him a little more Batman's foil. I like the elaborate death traps that he keeps setting up for, for Gordon. A plastic tray of plastic explosive. That's pretty great. Oh, but the the police cafeteria only used metal trays. I should have known. And in the end, it comes to him figuring out Bruce's identity by using something you pointed out. Well, that when Batman goes to Crime Alley that night every year, somebody with half a brain can put two and two together and realize. Hey, what happened on June 26th? This day in Gotham history. Yeah, it's not like it was a small incident. And so he starts to taunt Batman and winds up kidnapping Leslie Tompkins. This I is... would not do that if I knew anything about Batman. Uh, I think we talked about it during the Leslie Tompkins episode. Don't fuck with kids and don't fuck with Leslie. Yeah, And don't but... fuck with Alfred. Right. It's that, that line in uh, The Dark Knight about... So you think the wealthiest man in the city goes out at night and beats up criminals and you're trying to blackmail him? Good luck with that. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, don't don't go for that point with a guy like this. How many times does Barr return to the my beginning and my probable end? Well, the first one, yeah, this is the, only the two times that O'Neill okay. uses it the first time. It's this and it's that story. Okay. And this, the end of this has some, that and a couple of other lifts that feel directly out of uh, There Is No Hope in Crime Alley. They say the thing, There Is No Hope in Crime Alley. Yeah. He's very much paying tribute to that story because there were, this is maybe the third or fourth Leslie Tompkins story. She was not a major character at this point. There was there is no hope in Crime Alley and maybe one more before this where she at least played a major part. So swinging back to that particular chestnut. Yeah, I, that was definitely in my notes. It's like, oh, he uses that one again. Yeah, This guy also beats up Alfred. The Wrath really pressed all the buttons. Uh, does his homework. Yeah. Went after Alfred, went after Leslie, was trying to kill Jim Gordon. These are all things you don't do if you don't want Batman to really give you one. They have no idea who he is or his training or anything, but he's he's good. Good at what he does. 
they seem to hint that he went through the same or similar training to Batman. But you gotta have money for that shit, though. Yeah, I I kind of figured him doing like low rent versions of that, like criminal networks across the world. The fact that he was worried that he couldn't shoot Jim with, at the beginning when he had a sniper rifle up. It's like, didn't seem that far. You had him right in the scope. So maybe you're not all that good. Well, it, if I remember correctly, it wasn't his, it wasn't a, like a full regular sniper rifle. It was like his little sidearm that just had a scope with it. Oh, okay. So maybe he should have brought a bigger gun. Yeah, forethought might not be the Wrath's forte. And he missed the first time. It's true, he did. And for a guy that doesn't, you know, you'd think he would have spent more time training with guns. You, you Look, you, you, can't, you can't cover all your bases. You got to cut corners somewhere. This should have been better at hand-to-hand combat. He was good at knives. Oh, yeah. His death was fairly mundane. Contrived? Yeah. It felt like Barr wanted to do that bit about how, you know, Batman feels like, you know, I just watched myself die. It's an eerie feeling. And it's like, okay, that's great. But you couldn't have Batman kill him because he's Batman. But the fact that he sort of falls to his death like a Disney villain. After rolling around in fire. Right at the feet of his girlfriend which does let you have that parallel at the end, which I did like, of Leslie embracing her the way she embraced Bruce. I would like to see a modern writer take up this character. He has rarely been used. Barr came back and did a Batman confidential arc with him, and there was an episode or two of The Batman. The Batman. That cartoon that used the wrath oh there was a new 52 version of the wrath oh yeah in uh detective yeah i'd forgotten that that he pops up there during the layman run interesting we might want to watch that episode of the batman which was called the end of the batman it's the season it's the same season we've already saw the one because robin is there because their wrath has a sidekick their wrath and scorn fair ire enmity we might want to go and look at some of those those stories i think they wind up using scorn in the new 52 story as well but yeah there's there's just this story and then wrath child from uh batman confidential 13 to 16 pre-flashpoint they, they they go more into the Wrath's origin in that story, but it, it it still was Gordon who did it, but it, there's more layers to it. But I, I don't read that. Yeah, we might have to, to hit that at some point. It's 13 to 16, so I'm pretty sure it's on Infinite. Oh, oh and it's not Barr who writes that. It's Tony Bettard. Tony Bettard and Rags Morales Arts so will look definitely look pretty. I remember it not being bad. I remember it being okay, but it's not glowing praise. Well, it, it's it's one that it's like like a lot of Batman Confidential. That was fine, not terribly memorable, but not painful either. One day we'll do that anthology series episode. We do a Legends of the Dark Knight. Maybe that'll be the Confidential we do. We'll do a, a Legends arc, a that arc, and 
something from urban legends yeah or uh secret files or something oh yeah and the art here is really nice. I mean, what we did Michael Golden recently in the Batmite story, the Batmite New York adventure, but he does a great job. He has a, another one with a great sense of motion. The fight between Batman and the Wrath is nice. The design, I think, feels like, as Barr said, he needed him to look like Batman so the cops couldn't shoot because they wouldn't be sure which one of the two they would hit. Which is a little silly, but like the Rass costume. I do like how we have the W's very prominent. Yes. Uh, that's probably the nicest thing I'll say about it. You wonder, why is he wearing the costume? Batman wears the costume because it strikes fear into the hearts of criminals. This guy's killing people at a distance. Why does he need the elaborate costume if he's using bombs and sniper rifles? Yeah, and you would think that cops would be more difficult to scare. Except for the really crooked ones, but they aren't the ones he seems to be going after. And if you really wanted to confuse folks, wouldn't you just wear a Batman costume? I don't have anything else. I'm all out of material, so that means it's time for Batman number one special player on the other side on the big board. So are we thinking above or below Grendel? I would put it above. Because it is a solid, enjoyable story. Gets very nicely from point A to point B to point C. And it's it's an interesting concept, even if it is a bit silly in spots. But how much higher? Yeah, I know. I want to put it in the top 100, but I don't think I can put it above Doomsday Book at 99. Yeah. Does it go right there at 100? Is it the new number 100? That works for me. Yeah, I think that that's a good spot for it. And our final story of the night is Prometheus. This is New Year's Evil Prometheus number one and JLA numbers 16 and 17. The writer is Grant Morrison with pencils by Aaron Jorgensen and Howard Porter. Inks by Dave Micus, John Dell, and Mark Pennington. Colors by James Sinclair, Pat Garrahy, and Heroic Age. Letters by Janice Chang and Ken Lopez. And edited by Pete De- Tomasi and Dan Raspler and L.A. Williams. The cover dates are February to April of 1998. Prometheus, who has dedicated his life to killing all those who represent justice, has stolen his way into the JLA Watchtower and has begun to pick off the JLA one at a time. Time is running out for the League to save themselves and 100 civilians trapped on the Watchtower as Prometheus makes his way through their ranks. So Prometheus basically has the same origin as the Wrath, only it's not the same exact night as Bruce Wayne's parents were killed. He's another one whose criminal parents were killed by police and has thus dedicated his life to destroying all of justice. Justice is a place, you know. Yeah, bring them to justice. This is Grant Morrison. This is Grant Morrison, so it's got some wild high-concept stuff in there. This might be my favorite Morrison that we read. Not entirely surprised by that. I do like a simple, straightforward, I'm going to kill the goddamn Justice League. I think your favorite of things, aside from Arkham Asylum, because this is not going above Arkham Asylum at like 10. 
Uh, remember though, I was not in love with Arkham Asylum. Yeah, but this is also yeah. We'll we'll argue that yeah. out later. It's also not completely a Batman story either. But this is crazy fun. Yeah, with uh, with pocket dimensions that may or may not be um, the oh, Christian fuck. Limbo. Limbo. There we go. With my yep. mind was blanking. A guy who's just enjoying everything he's doing. I think it wraps up a little bit too tidily. Uh, this is our first story with uh, Electro Superman. Yep. Uh, that fun period in comics history. Well, it does wrap up a bit too quickly. You do gotta love that he gets taken out by the fact that he did all this work to be prepared for all the heroes, never counted on another villain, just being like, what the fuck are you doing? And bullwhipping him in the dick. Right in the dick. Yeah, don't fuck with Catwoman. She will bullwhip you in the dick. And while it is very Morrison in how high some of the concepts are, they ground it in that you have this ticking clock. You have the League at this point where we're right after the first of Morrison's six-part epic stories. This is right after Rock of Ages, which is a big, wild story involving an Injustice gang in the present with Luthor founding a new version of the Injustice gang that are the seven opposite numbers of the seven major leaguers and a time travel aspect with dark side and it's big and it's wild. And now you got, I want to kill the justice league because fuck justice. Yeah. I'm going to impersonate a schmuck to do it. Oh my. But is this story ever of its 1998-ness? That Prometheus has this, which is a cool idea, this helmet that allows him to download knowledge directly into his brain. But, but he has to put it on disk. Yes, exactly. He's got CD-ROMs. Now do you see, by the way, why pushback makes no friggin' sense? This guy would never be Hush's bitch. Uh, no. It's why they eventually had to retcon that that guy was just some dude who took the costume. Because this Prometheus comes out of Morrison's Justice League in a pretty bad way. Kind of comatose. And so this other criminal just took the costume and was like, yeah, I'm Prometheus now. You guess what? When real Prometheus comes out of that coma, he'll some real good. Oh, I can only imagine. This has a touch of Tower of Babel before Tower of Babel. Yes, yes, it does. Uh, you can see a lot of that fundamental DNA without the, you know, the Bruce Wayne, Batman, you know, drama there at the end. This is a guy who is just using his own devices and methods to kill the Justice League. And he's a prick. He has a few, like, really s- terrible... Like what he does to Jean is fucked up, but how he gets to Superman in the end, yeah. If you're gonna, if you're just a guy who, you know, yeah, you got some technology and you got some skill, but he's Superman. What do you do? You endanger a bunch of innocents and say the only way I'm gonna let these people live is if you kill yourself. Yeah, yeah, kill yourself. I would have liked 
to have seen Morrison go through with it. And I, I think that this Electro Superman, he was of such weird powers that you could have done it. Okay, I will like beam myself out into space. If that's what you want, that's what we'll do. And like Superman just becomes pure dissipated energy, but then, you know, rematerializes because of his will and that he's awesome. This is a very particular moment in the DC universe. Indeed it is. Because you got electric Superman. It's one of the periods where Queen Hippolyta is filling in for Diana. I don't think there's any other particularly weird or uncommon character bits. Green Lantern seems like a schmuck. It's not Hal Jordan. I know that. It's Kyle Rayner. I mean, he's Green Lantern in this book for 100 issues plus. This is very early in Kyle's evolution. And one of the things that Morrison does over the course of the series is Kyle coming to terms with being Green Lantern. Because he was not selected by the Guardians. He was, you know, Hal Jordan has just killed all the other Guardians and all the Green Lanterns. Read that story. Or read the aftermath of that story. Yep. Guardian crashes down to Earth and is like, I'm dying. You'll do. And he just gives him the ring and the lantern. So Kyle had a real inferiority complex. and As one might. Right. And Morrison does a lot with him over the course of this run, where what they do is show why Kyle has a place in the league. I started reading Green Lantern comics. The first Green Lantern comics I read were Kyle Rayner comics. Kyle was not the soldier and architect that Jon Stewart was. He wasn't the brave fighter pilot that Hal Jordan was. He wasn't even the brash blowhard that Guy Gardner was. Kyle was a comic book artist. The thing that was always cool about Kyle Rayner, and it's why what Prometheus does to him is so extra fucked up. You know, while Hal, you know, relied on the you know giant green boxing gloves, Kyle was an artist. So all his constructs were elaborate and different every time taking away his will to the point that he can't imagine anymore is pretty fucked up. Pretty fucked up. And I freaking love the, the thing with the flash, especially when you get to the end where it's like, oh yeah, the whole thing about the bombs that have been triggered by your super speed. I lied. Nah. Probably going to wind up just shooting him. But each of those elaborate plans and This is shortly after Final Night, because that's what gave us Electric Blue Superman. So this is when Oracle steps up. This is when Oracle stops just being the person who works with the Suicide Squad or with the Bat Family. This is where Oracle becomes the DC Universe's go-to for all the heroes. With this Justice League run, specifically starting in this arc. So, yay! Exposure for Barbara. Yay. Prometheus and the Wrath are similar, but we at least get more to who Prometheus is. Prometheus explains how he gets all that training. He's like, oh, there is honor among thieves. And by the way, my parents had blackmail material on this major mobster who was able to bankroll my training. Like, okay, that works the weird thing with the cosmic key and the monks. That's very Morrison. I went to a monastery and then I 
stayed there for a long time and then one of the monks was maybe an alien and he took me down to what might have been hell or a spaceship who knows yeah it, it, it was a very morrison moment he became like an alien thing and i killed him but then when i went back to the monastery there was a guy who looked just like him and they let me keep this key that lets me enter limbo the ghost zone, the phantom zone, whatever you want to call it. I got a place there. It's kind of nice. That's the other thing that very specifically puts this in a moment. Zoriel, the angel. Does that mean that there's a god? (laughs) I like that. Because this was when they had killed off for a while. They're just like, yeah, we just need to get rid of Hawkman. We can't. It's become too much of a mess. We need to take him off the board for a while. She did seem to be very much, or he, or whoever, whatever it is, did seem to be a Hawkman stand-in. Yeah, that's exactly what it was, that Morrison didn't have access to Hawkman, so they created Zorio. Can't have a Justice League without a Hawkman, I guess. So instead, you get Angel Man. Angel Man! We didn't make it completely clear, as you know, the synopsis tells you, but yeah, the Justice League has just announced their new expanded roster. So they're bringing all of these reporters onto the Watchtower. Which is and, on the moon. Yep. And Catwoman sneaks up as Cat Grant, which, oh, Gotham rogues and their love of puns. And I love Lois, like, that's not really Cat. And then Selena's like, yeah, no. And just. Gives a thing about how the tip of a bullwhip moves at the speed of sound and then hits Prometheus in the junk and he drops. Which I will not fault him for. I like how uh, Martian Manhunter is in disguise as Clark Kent. Yes, that was a good, good moment. And I love how he you know gets out of things like, oh, that teleportation didn't agree with me. <laughs> yep, that that's Clark. Very sensitive stomach. And going up to the station, Prometheus only knew that the big seven were going to be there because they hadn't announced the rest of the roster. So the fact that he had something prepared that would work on steel right out of the gate is like, okay, this guy had elaborate plans, not just for the ones he's going to fight. And the disc of the 30 greatest fighters in the DC universe that he puts in his helmet to fight Batman and then Batman getting up afterwards. Well, that was humbling. But he was he was beaten by himself because Batman was on the disc. Yep, exactly. I, I like Batman, Richard Dragon, Lady Shiva, Bronze Tiger, all those folks on one disc. Like, yeah. The steel plan was a little maybe too elaborate. For, especially for someone who he wasn't planning for. You're going to walk down a long hallway... And then you're gonna throw your hammer when it's, you could have you could have thrown your hammer at any point. The whole plan is to use these reporters as a the bargaining chip to get Superman to kill himself. So he's been causing havoc throughout the Watchtower. He started a major fire that took out the hydroponics bay that gave them their oxygen, and you get a pretty cool Aquaman moment with him diverting all of the the saltwater tanks that he uses. To refresh himself through the sprinkler system by hand, like manually moving this thing. That's freaking cool. Ugh, now the whole watchtower is going to smell like ass. That's true. But Morrison is one of the first writers or in that period where 
writers were like, yeah, Aquaman can be cool. We got to get him away from just being the guy who talks to fish. And between that and the Peter David run, they, they did more with Aquaman. And we get we get some Plastic Man who would serve as the, the comic relief, who had, had shown up in that previous run in uh, Rock of Ages, but now has joined the team. And a little bit of Huntress. Just a pinch. They'll each all have their parts to play over the course of the the balance of this run. As Morrison does these first 17 issues, then is off for, I think, a couple of two-issue arcs by Mark Wade. Comes back for a few issues, is off for a couple issues, and leaves at 41. I think of those 41 issues, does 35 or 36 Plus one million, plus a couple of secret files. So it's a sizable run. They were doing a lot of work between Batman and this. Not not at the same time, obviously. But we, uh, what was it? Late 90s, early 2000s? This is late 90s and the early 2000s. Then they go to Marvel and do the X-Men run in the early 2000s. And then come back to the Batman run in 04. Ah, very good. Plus, at the same time, they're doing uh, Invisibles. They did a little bit of Swamp Thing, Aztec the Ultimate Man, some other Vertigo, some miscellaneous Marvel stuff, the Marvel Boy and things like that. But yeah, Morrison has a healthy body of superhero work. I mean, Animal Man before this. I know Morrison is still not your jam, but this is when Morrison was less esoteric. Yes. You saw that in New World Order as well, those first four issues. And we'll see it more as we read other parts of the JLA run. Rock of Ages and World War III are also a bit on the esoteric side. But the the Tomorrow Woman one issue, Imaginary Stories, the two-parter with Starro and Sandman, the JLA-JSA crossover... The ideas are still crazy, but it's grounded in more traditional superhero action. And I can appreciate that. Even here, I mean, Morrison has always had a good feel for Batman. Yeah, he's not all over the place, but he d- he does have his moments. You know, it's weird to, s- to not see him being beaten on panel. But then when he comes back with the, well, that was humbling. Like, that was... A real human moment for him. I think Morrison liked at this point to keep the not illusion that Batman is the baddest of asses, but like to pull away to let readers be surprised because you get that in this. And it's the same in New World Order, that moment where he's facing down the Martians and he just cracks his knuckles. You don't see him beat those four Martians. You just see him prep. And the next thing you know, he's dragging them along behind him. Whatever you could imagine would be better ass than anything that Batman could do. Yes. So that's, I think, why they kept those two scenes off. Because both it's better ass that you can imagine Batman beating the Martians. And whatever Prometheus does to beat Batman is going to be cooler than what you could actually do. Or you wind up letting people down. 
Yeah, like, do you want to just see Batman say, yeah, I got my ass kicked, or do you just want to see, like, this fight scene in comics that you've seen a thousand times before? Or it's the Prometheus takes him out in, like, three blows, because they've already gamed out the fight in their head, and so Prometheus knows exactly where to hit. That was the argument, I don't remember exactly when it was, but in Star Wars Rebels, when Obi-Wan Kenobi faces down Darth Maul for the last time. People were expecting this episode-long fight. And instead, it's four strikes of the blight. Like, boom, 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 and Kenobi just skewers him. Because Obi-Wan is older and more experienced, and Maul hasn't learned. And Obi-Wan has seen Maul fight. So it's not going to be elaborate. Is that Obi-Wan has reached this point where he is a true master of this, and Maul is still caught in his rage. So it was not impressive, but it was a logical character beat. Same thing in uh, New Hope, where Obi-Wan basically lets Vader win. Yeah. They're not impressive fights from a visual standpoint. They're impressive in what they say about character. And that's what we would have run into here. And that's why you get, oh, that was humbling. Because that is a character moment. But seeing the actual fight wouldn't have been as interesting. What was important was what it meant for Bruce and how Bruce eventually gets back at Prometheus. We'll get there. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we will. But I think that about does it. Uh, that means it's time for Prometheus on the big board. So you said this is your favorite Morrison we've done so far. Yes, I believe so. So right now, New World Order, JLA 1 to 4, is at 65. So we're looking above that. Yeah, I'd feel comfortable with that. Okay, next up, about 43 is Gothic, which is also, that's Morrison and Klaus Jansen. That's Legends of the Dark Knight 6 to 10. I'm trying to remember Gothic. Mr. Whisper, the immortal guy who was going to try to sacrifice all of Gotham so he didn't go to hell. Weird public school. Did that like 70 episodes ago, it feels like. Uh, 61. (laughs) <laughs> that was episode 24 oh my goodness I I don't know if it belongs in such rarefied air as the top 50 yeah. I don't know what do you what do you feel I think you're I think it is somewhere in between 50 and 65 I, I will as much as I love New World Order I love that Batman moment there's a lot of fun in this so let's say, I don't think it goes, we were talking about them earlier, at 53 and 54, Mad Monk and Monster Man. I don't think it beats those. No, because this this art is, it's a little too silly for me. I want something more grounded, more realistic. This has a very plastic texture to it, especially in the faces. And it's also, it, it's two different artists that you get Jorgensen on the special, Porter on the first part, Jorgensen back for the second part. And if it had all been Porter, or if even Porter had just done the two Justice League parts, probably would have been stronger. Yeah. But Jorgensen was the lesser of the two artists, and he did most of the book. What about Mystery Casebook at 56? Better or worse? It's fun. It's enjoyable. But it's a trifle. It's a very good trifle. It's the best trifle. So are we thinking it's going to drop then right above that? Then in between going straight, laughter after midnight, so that first Batman Adventures annual about all the villains trying to go straight and Mystery Casebook. 
I think so. Yeah. All right. New, New 56. 56. And that's it for tonight. Next week, we're reading three Elseworlds spawned from classic horror literature. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names, June, come on, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Tuba, Tim Rooney, Giorgios Raggioli, David Wheel, and Alexander Wheel for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm a big blue check loser at Will Nevin, and I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books, for my other show, WMQ&A, for my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I, interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.